I was imagining what it might be like if we told the history of the world. Maybe the significant inventions that took place in the world. And imagine one of them was saying that oh, on this particular date, the wheel was invented. And then it moved on to the next thing. But then you think about how important is the wheel? I mean, it changed mil the military with the invention of chariots and the ability to fight from chariots. It changed trade and commerce, the ability to move goods and services over long distances. It changed the way that things were built. No longer were you limited to the building materials in a local area, but you could use wheels and transport them over a long distance. The water wheel is a subsequent consequence of wheel, which began power. How many of the things that we operate in today use gears, which are simply an output of the wheel? And so if we were to simply read a phrase that said, oh, and the wheel was invented, we think, oh, well, that doesn't say a whole lot. And then we start to dig into all the significance and the meaning of the wheel was invented. We realize that we could talk for days and days about that. And the Apostles' Creed, as I've thought about it, is a lot like that. We've been studying, as Rhonda alluded to, the Apostles' Creed for a number of weeks now. And if you're not familiar with it, the creed is printed on one of the inserts in your bulletin there on the back side of one of the songs. And it begins, I believe in God the Father Almighty. And each one of these phrases and what we've been doing over the past seven weeks is taking each one of those phrases and realizing we can dig deep into it and see that it's filled with meaning and depth. And there's all kinds of things we could say about it. And this week we're looking at the phrase that says, he was crucified, dead, and buried. We realize there's a whole lot that goes on. Now, is it the most important line? I don't know if we can rank in terms of importance in the creed, but it's certainly up at the top. If we had to start, if somebody forced us to say, okay, you have to number them, and what's the most important thing? This one would be at the top, and so that was even in the passage we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. So Paul thought it was pretty important that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And so this line about this, and earlier on in this same letter to 1 Corinthians, Paul says that he, he committed himself to knowing nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. And so for Paul and for all the early church, the fact that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried was essential to their faith, that there was something going on inside of it. And we're going to focus on just that one part, just one word, crucified. Now, the other two are kind of offshoots or corollaries to it. He was crucified, and as the book with the kids said, he'd really died. And then he was placed in a tomb. And spoiler alert, that's not the end of the story, right? We know what happens next. Most of us know what happens after that. But there's this thing, but we want to know that he truly died, and he died as a punishment and took the punishment for our sins. And so this idea that Jesus is crucified, too, is central to our faith. But we could say, well, I believe that Jesus was crucified. But when we're talking about that we believe that he was crucified, we're not simply saying there was a historical fact. Many historians, ancient historians, almost all ancient historians would agree that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth that was put to death by the Romans on a cross somewhere between 30 and 33 A.D. Almost no historian disputes that. But what we're saying in the creed, when we say, I believe that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, we're doing more than saying there was a historical event. We're saying something about what is its significance. 
And so you think, okay, Pastor Carl, the significance of the cross, how long are we going to be here, right? Because there's a whole lot we can say. So I'm just going to highlight a few things, and I want to focus in particular on how it shapes our lives and how it shapes our lives. But first, a few notes or thoughts on crucifixion. A crucifixion was used by the Romans as a means of death. So a person was placed on a wooden cross, nails placed through their hands or their wrists and through their feet, and they died essentially of asphyxiation and exposure. It was a painful, cruel, harsh way to kill someone. It took days. This was not simply an efficient means to execute someone. There were ways you could kill someone much more quickly. It was designed for degradation. It was designed for shame. It was designed for humiliation. It was designed for cruelty. And the purpose of it was the Romans took certain people, and it was typically the ones reserved for crucifixion, were slaves, they were political enemies, or they were thieves. And the Romans would crucify these people, and they would do it publicly as a way to demonstrate their power and remind everyone, this is what happens when you cross Rome. This was what happens when you go against us. In fact, crucifixion was such a horrendous thing and seen as so despicable and so despised that very few Romans, we, we have very little writing from the Romans about it. We have a few Jewish historians that talk about it, but the Romans themselves didn't even want to write about it. And the idea if you were to bring a Roman into 2022 and tell them, yeah, we have jewelry and we have paintings of crucifixions in our houses. They'd be appalled because this was such a shameful, degrading experience. And so that's an important thing for us to keep in the back of our mind as we consider this. But so now we're going to go speed round through the Bible and kind of highlight just a few of the things that the New Testament writers, the gospel writers, and Paul and some of the other writers tell us about the cross and what happened on the cross. So I've got it electronically here because I'm not going to be able to, we're going to do, how many of you played those games? Sometimes you, if you grew up in church, you maybe played what they call them, um, sword drills or whatever, right? Sword, sword drills, it, it, the idea that the Bible is a, the word of God or a sword. And so like, how fast can you find a verse? I'm going to go a lot, but if you can keep up with me, you get a special prize, all right? But all right, first one, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus' death on the cross is a ransom is one way it's described. Hebrews 14, 24. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. So the blood of Jesus' death on a cross establishes a new covenant. Galatians 1, 4. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. The cross, the crucifixion of Jesus rescues us from the present evil age in the kingdom of darkness. Romans 5.10. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So the cross establishes reconciliation, return of relationship. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on the pole. He redeems us from the curse. 1 Peter 1.18, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from our ancestors. Ancestors. So this sense of redemption, which was a technical word, which meant a ransom paid to pay someone, typically out of slavery. 
which is described in Romans 6, 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Jesus' death on his cross frees us from slavery to sin. <clears throat> Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Jesus' death on the cross accomplishes forgiveness for us. Again, reconciliation, Colossians 1.20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. So Jesus' death on the cross not only reconciles us to God, but all of creation, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Hebrews 1.3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And he's provided purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So Jesus' death on a cross cleanses us of moral impurity. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. So Jesus' death on a cross raises us to new life. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So he canceled this indebtedness we have to sin. And then having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus' death on the cross was a triumph over the powers of evil. That's just a few of them. Anybody keep up? I didn't see anybody rip rapidly. So all these different things that accomplished on the cross, and we see that one, Jesus' death on the cross can't be simply nailed down to like one thing or another. Maybe if I had to be pressed and somebody said, we say, well, in one sentence, Carl, what did Jesus' death on the cross accomplish? Or even one word, I would say salvation. And salvation encompasses all those things. It's making all things right and restoring us. It's restoring us in right relationship with God, in right relationship with each other. It's redeeming creation. It's conquering the powers of evil. It's cleansing us from moral impurities. It's bringing forgiveness of sins. All those things that the Bible talks about, all that took place on the cross. So when we read the creed and we say, I believe that he was crucified. That word crucified, when we start digging into it, all those verses that I just read really fast, all that is in that one little word. And so when we say the creed, we recognize we're saying a whole lot more. We think, oh, it's just the creed. This it points us, it's a guide to faithful reading of the Scripture. And so saying, I believe he was crucified, it's not just the fact that a man died on a cross, but the significance that it has. And that was all, well, some of the significance of it. So those are some of the benefits, but a couple more things, and then I want to get into kind of the main application that we think about. One is, it's also a demonstration of God's love. We read that in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus' death on the cross is a demonstration. This is how God shows his love for us. If we want to say, well, how does God love us? Because God, love can be kind of an ethereal, kind of a mushy thing, a, a very vague idea. Well, you love someone. And here we see that God loved us in a concrete way. And the demonstration of his love, he said, well, what does God's love look like? God's love looks like Jesus' death on a cross. That's the extent, the depths of God's love, how far God will go to love us. And so we could read the phrase, I believe that he was crucified, dead, and buried, and we could talk about all those things. We could say, oh, I believe all those things. But what I want us to do is to realize the creed is not something simply we 
confess and say these things are true. But the creed is also something we're called to live. So we say, well, how do we live out? How does Jesus' death on a cross affect the way we live? I mean, it affects the way we live in the sense that we can recognize it as a reconciliation between us and God. It's the place where we find forgiveness. But I want to think of it in terms three terms uh, that theologian Michael Byrd used to describe the implications of the cross. Identity, imitation, and resistance. Identity, imitation, and resistance. How Jesus' death on the cross does those things. So Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What's Paul saying here? Paul is saying that everything about the way he lives, all of his life is determined by the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified for him and now lives in him. Or as Michael Bird says, I am who I am only as I am in Christ Jesus. I am who I am only as I am in Christ Jesus. And so if we were to confess the creed and say, I believe that Jesus Christ was crucified, we're saying that all of our life should be determined, centered, revolves around this fact that Jesus Christ died for us. It's the only way to live for God. To be crucified with Him is to recognize that He alone can save. That it ultimately defines who we are. So one of the questions we might ask ourselves is, is that how I define my life? The way Paul does says, I am crucified with Christ and not is no longer I who live, but He who lives in me. When we think about the crucifixion of Jesus, is it just some ancient historical fact? Is it just some way that we find forgiveness in God? And it's that, but it's more. Is it the defining thing for the way we live and all that we do? Do I value my life? I said, probably not. I don't, it's not... But that's what Paul is inviting us to. That's what the creed is inviting us to say. That the crucifixion of Jesus should define our life completely. And then the second one is imitation. So in Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them all, this is Jesus, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So when we say, I believe that Jesus Christ was crucified... Jesus also said, we're to follow along with him. To take up our cross. In other words, to be willing. And when Jesus said this, we sometimes, you know, sometimes people, uh, will, I've heard people use the phrase, and I probably have at some point, like, oh, that's my cross to bear, right? And sometimes it's just an annoying aunt or uncle. Or somebody in your family, like, oh, it's just my cross to bear. That's not what Jesus was talking about. When Jesus says to take up your cross, he's talking about denying who you are, to be willing to die. And we have sisters and brothers around the world, Christians, for whom that's what faith in Jesus looks like. To proclaim Jesus as Lord, to own a Bible, to preach, to share Jesus with someone in some cases can lead to literal death. 
But it's also, we can think of it and say, well, for us here in the United States, we're fortunate. Preaching, is sharing Jesus will probably not lead to literal death. So how do we think about what this means for us? It means, do we practice that same sort of self-giving love? So in Paul's letter to the Philippians, in chapter 2, he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Because before that, he's just said, look not to your own interests, but each of your interests the other. So in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what Paul does is he's saying this following Jesus, this being willing to die, can part in part mean just giving up our own rights. Something we don't do very well, particularly as Americans. We like our rights. These are my rights. And I get, but to follow Jesus, to imitate him means to look to the needs of others before our own. Means we're making decisions and we're thinking, well, this is what I really want, but that other person, that's really what would be best for them. What should I do? And the call of Jesus is to do for the sake of the other. It's perseverance in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. It talks about following the way of Jesus, and it says, He says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So the way of the cross, so I believe that he was crucified, is a reminder that life can be hard sometimes. That following Jesus can be difficult that it can lead to persecution, it can lead to troubles. There can be the challenges of, I pray and I pray, but God doesn't seem to be listening. I've got this thing going on in my life and I'm not being changed. I lost my job. My family's falling apart. I'm not sure, this Jesus, I'm not sure about this Jesus thing. But when we say, I believe that he was crucified, and we remember the words of Jesus to take up our cross, and we remember the words of Hebrews that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the shame of the cross. It's a call to persevere. To follow the way of Jesus and to persevere, to know what lies beyond. Because, just as in our children's book, it doesn't end. The last page of the book isn't, they laid him in a tomb, but we turned the page. We'll talk about that next week. But it's a call for Perseverance. Or Jesus at the end of his life in John chapter 13, talking to his disciples, he says, by this all world will know if you love one another. He says, for love one another as I have loved you. So the call of I believe that he was crucified is a call to love one another. The people here, the people who are different from us, the people who are unique, Christians not only sitting in our congregation but in other congregations. So all that is wrapped up. This imitation of Jesus looks like all these things that we think about the crucifixion. So we have, it's our identity, it's our imitation, and finally it's our resistance. So Galatians 6.14 says this, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, to follow Jesus, to die with him, is to no longer allow the ways of the world to govern our life. So when we say, I believe that he was crucified, and we say we're crucified with him in some way that we can't fully understand, we're also saying we're no longer going to follow the ways of the world. And so we find that the crucifixion of Jesus contained many messages that ran counter to those of the day. The crucifixion of Jesus turned the world upside down. The understanding, the people willing to follow, and it continues to this day, and we're invited into that message. Paul described it as foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. There's a historian named Larry Hurtado who has a book called Destroyer of the Gods, which one is just one of the best book titles ever, I think. But here's this book, and he writes as, as a Christian about the influence of Christianity and the way it really turned the world upside down. Some historians that argue, well, we're not so sure about it, but how it truly transformed. And this is what Hurtado says. He says, the notion that there is one true and transcendent God, that this God loves the world and humanity, and may have become subsequently such a familiar notion whether or not it is actively affirmed, that we cannot easily realize how utterly strange, even ridiculous it was even in the Roman era. What he's saying, he's saying, the idea that one true and transcendent God loves people was utterly strange, even ridiculous in the Roman era. And so when the early Christians proclaimed, I believe in Jesus Christ crucified, that was a crazy idea to the people of the Roman world. The gods of the ancient world were petty and jealous. The gods existed. The idea that the gods would love people, they, they might use the idea of love in just in terms of friendship, but the gods existed in the minds of the Romans and we existed simply to serve them. There was no idea that a god could possibly love a human being. So when we say Jesus was crucified, remember one of the verses we read, Romans 5.8 said what? This is how God demonstrates his love for us. This idea that God demonstrated his love for us was a radical idea that turned the ancient world upside down. And that's why Hurtado calls this book Destroyer of the Gods because eventually it led to the end of much of those Roman pantheons of gods. There's another historian named Tom Holland. Now some of you are Marvel fans, not that Tom Holland, not the one who played Spider-Man in the movies. There's another Tom Holland, also British, but he's a historian. But he writes not from a Christian perspective. He doesn't declare himself to be a believer. But he wrote a book called Dominion. And again, as he began to study historically and to look at where the world is, and he describes it and he talks about growing up and being fascinated by dinosaurs and by history. And then later he began to be fascinated by the classical world, the Romans and the Greeks. And he looked at the Romans and Greeks and he said he realized there was this chasm between him and them. And what he realized was that chasm was primarily in terms of moral and ethics. And what he as a historian realized was that for most of the Western world, the morality and the ethics that we have come out of the Christian tradition. And so he says this. He says the notion that a God might have suffered torture and death on a cross was so shocking as to appear repulsive. 
Familiarity with the biblical narrative of the crucifixion has dulled our sense of just how completely novel a deity Christ was. In the ancient world, it was the role of gods who laid claim to ruling the universe to uphold its order by inflicting punishment, not to suffer it themselves. The notion that a god might have suffered torture and death on a cross was so shocking as to appear repulsive. It was the role of gods who laid claim to ruling the universe to uphold its order by inflicting punishment, not to suffer it themselves. And so what Tom Holland does is he looked at the history, he said, this idea that a God was crucified, that a God experienced the shame, the degradation, the cruelty, the humiliation of death on a cross, that a God chose to associate himself with the slave, with the poor and the lowly, sent reverberations that echoed through the first century and down to us today. It countered the values then. It said that the suffering of the poor and the weak is touched by the divine. Earlier in the creed, we talked about Jesus who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We talked about the importance of this means that he was fully God and fully man. In other words, as Jesus died, this common thieves, political rebellion, slave's death on a cross... He was associating himself with the lowest of the low. It's what we said, what we read in Paul in the letter to the Philippians, that he took on the form of a servant, took on the form of a slave. And so that means the lives of the poor and the slaves were touched by the divine, which subsequently meant that the weak and the poor had value. In the society, ancient society, the value of the weak and the poor was simply what they could do to provide for others. The great philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, Diogenes, all of them had this idea that there were certain stations, certain roles in life that everyone was assigned to. Those who were slaves, that was simply their destiny, their fate in life. They were existed simply for the purpose of serving others. They were simply property to be used up. And Jesus' death on a cross, in part with all the other teachings of Christianity, revolutionized the world and said, no, they have value, which led to what we believe today and understand this intrinsic value of each and every human being. So when we say, I believe that Jesus was crucified, in part what we're proclaiming is this idea that we hold even today that all people have value. Jesus was crucified. He suffered. He was humiliated. Ancient world, shame and humiliation, not real big on values. No one wanted to suffer. But think to today. If you were to make a comparison and ask someone, which is better, to suffer for good or to inflict suffering? How many vote for inflicting suffering is the better good? How many about suffering for good? Where does that come from? Jesus' death on a cross. Because in the ancient world, inflicting suffering was a symbol of power. Was a symbol of power. And Jesus flipped that around and said, no, true power looks like giving your life. And so again, Holland argues, and as a historian, not a professing Christian, that Christ and Christianity inverted the values of antiquity. That it was suffering not slaughter that was glory. 
that weakness was strength, that shame was glory. Because remember, at the heart of the story, the Son of God took the form of a slave and died for the sins of the world. And so when we proclaim in that simple word, I believe He was crucified, dead, and buried, we're talking about a whole system of values, a rebellion against the way of the world. And so in the same way, we're called to renounce the values of the world. It wasn't simply simply something back then. But instead, we're called, as Paul talks about, to die to the values of the world, to say no to sin, to seek God's kingdom. That Jesus alone defines our values. Not a political party, not the Constitution, not some vague idea of family values, or simply what our parents taught us. Now, some of those things may line up, but ultimately, as we're making the choices and we're looking down, what are my values? What are the things that I believe? Jesus is the final arbiter.